We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. I would like to invite you to come in for our Bible study this morning. We need to get started here. Josiah, good to see you this morning. Darius, good to see you as well. We're just waiting for Betty to come. <laughs> now we can get started. <laughs> All right. I was just uh, speaking with Ann, and uh, she shared a prayer request of a sorts with us. Uh, her hours have been cut way, way down at her work, and uh, it doesn't seem right to me, but... I'm uh, not in the know on all these details, so let's just pray for her to uh, be able to find additional hours for work, and uh, she's a very faithful worker, so we want to remember her that way, and and, uh, also we might as well pray too for Alexis, uh, looking for uh, work, hopefully finds a good job, she's graduated and ready, ready to be a teacher, so... Pray that she finds something. I'm sure somebody will snap her up before the fall, uh, although sometimes these schools don't quite realize they need teachers until about September 1, and then they scramble and <laughs> get somebody in there. So let's, let's, have a, let's have a word of prayer. Hey, listen back there. You boys in the back row. Yes, 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 that's right. Now they're snapped to attention. (laughs) Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity we have again to gather this morning and enjoy fellowship together. We pray, Lord, especially this morning in intercession for our sister Anne and also Alexis as they uh, seek uh, employment or further employment to make up the lack in Anne's case of uh, hours that have been given to her at her job We don't understand why this is, but we pray you might give her favor in the eyes of the supervisors to be able to uh, recover some of those hours again. In any case, Lord, we're here today, and we want to also set aside those cares of the world for a moment for just a couple of hours and enjoy the ministry of the Word of God. And we pray, Lord, for those that are hurting this morning, those suffering, those sick, those in the hospital and rehab, Uh, or wherever they are, at home perhaps, uh, as well in that condition. And we pray that you will encourage their hearts, and those that are watching this morning, those that are here, will be strengthened in their faith by further understanding and application of your word into their lives. Thank you for each one who's here this morning, for the classes, for the young people, and uh, we pray for those preparing too for baptism. We thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. We're again in the book of Haggai. This time we'll focus most of our attention in chapter 2. We have talked about this book and 
said over and over again how the things that are concerning within this book are the things which are spoken about. In terms of a timeline, the writing was done in a very short span of time, but the topics or the subjects or the incidents or events that the book refers to covers a broad range of time. And we will see today in the part we're looking at today that this book, even in these few verses, speaks about things that have not yet come to be. We don't know how long it will be. But what we do understand is, and I've said this this way, that God has a program, God has a plan, God is doing something. And we are seeing a part of it through what we observe in this book. The immediate setting for the book, we understand, had to do with God's people who had been down in Babylon because they didn't do what the Lord commanded them to do. And God had an agreement with them. He had an arrangement. He had a covenant with them. That if they would do certain things, they would get certain results. That if they did certain positive things, which are simply do the things that I tell you to do, refrain from the thing, doing the things I tell you don't do, and then you will be safe and secure in your land for the long term. But, you know, God is really fascinating to us in, in that he laid out a choice. And he says, I'm not going to force you now to obey. I'm just going to tell you, if you do this, you get these results. And if you do this, you get these other results. Now, I'm giving you a wherewithal and an ability to make your choice as to what you're going to do. We see that principle over and over again. The Bible does say that what a person sows, they'll reap. Well, God gave us illustration after illustration after illustration in the scriptures of that particular principle. And so the reason they were down there in in Babylon was that they were reaping what they had sown. But there was a bigger picture than just that. If we look at it, we can say, okay, yes, we can understand that we should be trying our best to sow the right things because there is a reaping coming. And when reaping time comes, we want to be able to rejoice and be glad. But if we've been sowing bad things and the reaping time comes, it won't be a pretty picture and there won't be rejoicing. But the bigger picture with Israel is that these were a people whom God had marked out for a specific purpose. And that purpose was that they were to be 
a nation of priests, a holy people, to bring blessing to the whole world. That's what they were supposed to be. And shall I say it this way? God never gave up on that plan. That's still the plan. And it's going to be just as the Lord said. But disobedience and then the delay, but also the fulfillment of the program that God has. So the people then, when they were down there in Babylon, God reminded them of why they were there, of what they did to cause him in his love and kindness to send them there. I like to express it like that. I said, he sent them down there because he loved them. See, he didn't say, I'm just going to annihilate you. I'm forever done with you, but I'm going to deal with you. And then I'm going to bring you back. And we know that in the history of Israel, they came back, they built a temple, and then what, 70 AD, and get smashed, just smithereens again. For the same reason, they disobeyed the Lord went off a different path, on a different path. And the Lord said, but that's not the end of matters either. <laughs> I'm still not done. There's still yet more to come. And we see that sort of thing here. But he embraced them. He tells them about some of the consequences that were the result of what they did. And so now in verse 12 of chapter 1 again, just to repeat again, it says here, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people. So you notice those three groups are called out again. And it said, what happened next year? They obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. And the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord God has sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. They obeyed the voice of the Lord. So if at first the people don't obey, what should they do? They should not just continue on in disobedience. They shouldn't just say, I'm staying on this path. They should listen to the voice of the Lord and say, I'm going to get off that path and get back on the path the Lord wants me on. As a people, that's what they basically were affirming. That, okay, now we get the point. The particular point in this book was that they had a responsibility to rebuild the temple. And all the provisions for doing it had been made. God had worked in these pagan kings, Cyrus, Darius, to allow for this to be and they were there. And for what reason? I mean, obviously, there were opponents to the project. They had opposition. That's just the way life is. If ever we desire, we can even take it in more, even a secular vein almost. If you're determined to do the right thing, even if it's not specifically gospel related, you can be sure you're going to get some opposition. And you might get some really strong opposition, too. So then the question is, so now what am I going to do? If I'm 
am I going to do the right thing in spite of the opposition that's coming against me? Or am I going to somehow say, well, I don't know if I have to, I don't know if I really have to do that. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll just do something a little different. Maybe I'll just make adjustments or whatever. But the Lord says, obey me. That's what he said to the people. And the people said, okay, we're going to obey. And uh, to reiterate again, look at verse number 14 then. So the Lord stirred up the spirit. So there is a working together of the people and of God's work. We speak about salvation and how the gospel message is presented. And we tell people they need to understand that they're sinners without an anchor, without a hope. But there is a hope that God has provided it through his son, the only begotten, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life. God said, I made a provision. And the people ought to heed it and they ought to hear it. But we also say, and the scripture tells us, that unless the Lord draws them, no one will come. So we see that while he says whosoever will, he also has this, but I, God is involved and he's drawing. So there are the two things at work. But we know that the call is real because God says if the people don't heed it, there are bad consequences. And God is not at fault. Somebody said, and the God, or will the God of all the earth do right? Job, he will. Every time. And so the fault is with us, not with God. Although we would like sometimes to not say the fault is ours. And so God stirred up these. And again, these three are listed again. We get the, the priest, we get the governmental leadership, and then we get the people. And then God had worked. They said we're going to obey. They had a heart to obey, and God had worked in them. And so then it says then, the people came and worked on the Lord, on the house of the Lord, their God. Their God. They had been behaving as if he wasn't their God. When they had all of the idolatrous worship and all that going on, they were acting as if he was not their God. But now they say he's our God. Now, <clears throat> let's go again into chapter 2. We see a date there, and it's seventh month, the 21st of the month. The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, our governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying. So again, this is, and we've said this, we, we keep repeating these things, if you are like I am, the repetition would cause us to stick at least longer than it would have with just one time going over it. 
But in any case, this is what it says here. There were some who had remembered the temple from Solomon's uh, time, what had been built. And it was a magnificent structure. Shall we say well, it was awesome, the way some of the young people said, awesome. Well, I think that would be really an understatement, maybe the understatement of the year, as to the glamour of this. They saw and knew that what was being constructed in terms of the grandness of it was an inferior product. But that's really kind of secondary because the temple is not the building. The essence of what the temple is for is not to enjoy the beauty of the building. The essence of the issue is the God of the temple. And so the building doesn't have to be ornate. We have this building, and it's a regular, plain building. It's not an ornate structure. We can worship God just as well in this building as in the most ornate structure that's available these days for these kinds of services. So it's not the building. It's the God whom the people are worshiping. But there were some, and Ezekiel pointed out how there were some who were weeping and others were rejoicing because of remembering. And then those verses where it talks about, it says to be strong, and again, that be strong, be courageous, take a stand up. That's also in three parts there, addressed to each of the three. And that's that's what we see there, to be sure that everybody is included in what the prophet is saying. And everybody needs to heed. It's not just for the preacher or the deacon, but it's for everybody. So now, in verse 5, he said, According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. This is very interesting. When they came out of Egypt. And one of the things that you would notice is that over and over again, Israel is told to remember Egypt and that you were there as captives. Remember that. There's a significance to remembering it. But the covenant that he had made with them, I'm just going to read a few verses that I put in my notes, not turn to it, but in Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, he said, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So God is saying, I delivered you out of Egypt. Why did they need to be delivered out of Egypt? I thought they had good food down there. They did indeed have good food. Now I'm just animating what happened in the wilderness when the people got to missing the food they had in Egypt. They said, let's go back. We're tired of this provision that God has given to us here in this wilderness. We want to go back to the Egyptians and eat that nice food they had. That was the heart of the people. That's always a danger. But anyway, let's not belabor that point at this point. 
So the Lord says, according to the word that I covenanted with you when I came out of Egypt, my spirit remains among you. And then it says, do not fear. Do not fear. Uh, for I am with you. I, <clears throat> and then that I'm going to press on. Always there are many thoughts, and we can't say everything that comes to mind. And so I skipped some of the things that I put in my notes because I would never make much progress along the verses if I, if I don't. <laughs> okay, but here's the next point I'm going to press to. So they had a valid reason to not have fear because the Lord was with them. Now, verse number six, or let me take six through nine together because we see something interesting here. We see something that's a bit different. In verses six through nine, this is what we read. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, in a little time or a little while, he says, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And then he says, the silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. So now when you read that, what do you see there? What's going on here? You notice that the Lord says, I will. And he says, shake heaven and earth. I will shake all nations. I will fill this temple with glory. That's, he says, and he says, in this place, I will give peace. So what is a natural question that comes to mind then? You know, sometimes people say there are certain questions. There are five of them, four, four W's and an H. <laughs> you might say when. But on the basis of what you read here, where, where would you put the when? past or future from our day. I think we have to put it as future so that we understand that what the prophet is talking about is not something that is historical, not something that happened when Jesus came on the scene and went into the temple and whipped the people out who were uh, denigrating the temple or misusing the temple. It, it, it's not that. It's for the future. These things, we understand them to be things that God is saying, this is what's going to happen. It's going to happen the way we read it, in plain language. And that's one of the things the pastor has been teaching us about this, the kingdom of God. 
as it's presented throughout the whole scriptures, that there will be a reign, literally, of Christ upon the earth. And uh, he told the, Jesus told the disciples that they would be reigning. And scripture tells us that the saints will reign with him. So there is a future day. We don't spiritualize it and make it to be something different than what the text plainly seems to be saying. We just say what it seems to be saying is clearly what it really is saying, and we just stand on that position. Now, so he said, I'll shake the heavens again. So we think about what, what God did a shaking at the time of the giving of the commandments and all that back at Sinai. And I'm just going to lift out a few verses there and read. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, it said, In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on, that, on the same day they came to the wilderness. Verse 3, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel. And then it says, Moses, in verse 19, went up and down from the mountain, went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. I'm still in Exodus 19, verse 16. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all people who were in the camp trembled. And then verse 18, now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. You can read about this sort of thing again in Psalm 77. Verses 16 to 18. I wanted to read those, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to read that. But Psalm 77 is, is, is really fascinating, and it, it covers and talks about the journey of Israel and what some of the things were, dramatic things that God did, and that's included in it. And so he says he will shake the nations. And uh, four times. And the glory of the future temple would be glory would be a glory magnificent beyond what had been ever seen before. And then he talks about the desire of nations. That's an interesting phrase, and depending on where you read or who you're reading, the different ideas as to really what's going on there. I'll tell you the way I understand what's going on here with that. You will notice. I don't know how your punctuation is done in the book, in the, in the volume you're reading from, but in the one that I'm reading from, after it says, I will shake the heaven, and let me just run in this, that the text doesn't support the notion that this shaking had to be in a short time span from when it happened. It's the idea of imminency. I think I said that before, imminency. Like we said, the rapture is imminent. That doesn't mean it's going to be tomorrow or next year or 10 years. Imminent means it can be any time. It will come. He said, I will shake the nations, but 
uh, from verse 6 to 7, we, man just has a semicolon. And they shall come to desire, to the desire of all the nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And so to me, that's all a part of an event, of a, a future event that's going to happen. I'm going to read some verses here to let you understand how I understand this on the basis of what Scripture actually does say in other places beyond this particular one, which I believe to be speaking about really the same, the same event. But then in verse 8, though, the Lord says, The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. So, so God has said, These things are mine. <laughs> Job, you know, he, he understood that. Where God says, well, uh, in Job, we see a phrase. I'm going to come back to where I was. I haven't lost my place. In Job 41.11 says, who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. That's the Lord. Uh, in Psalm 50, verse 7 to 12, and I'm picking on one piece of it. The Lord of all things, they are mine. <laughs> So these things are all the Lord's things. Isaiah chapter 2 is where I will spend a little bit of time here. Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw these things concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And so Isaiah is in a prophecy, and he's speaking about things to come. These kinds of things that are listed here, including that the glory of the temple will exceed what it had ever been before. Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. You might consider that to be a technical term, an eschatological, a future. That the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the house of the Lord. These are the nations saying this. The prophet is saying, this is going to happen. It hasn't happened. But he said it will. That's what a prophecy is. He's speaking it. He said it's going to be. They're going to say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. And we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall there be war anymore. Has that already occurred? Is that occurring now? It's not. But it's a glorious thing to think about it. The Lord said it will be. When? See, we're talking about a millennial kingdom thousand year period where the Lord Jesus is reigning upon the earth. Why do we say that? Well, we just read what the Bible says and the Bible says it's going to be in Revelation to give you the thousand years and that's why we call it millennial because of the thousand. But 
we don't argue with it. We just say this is what the Lord said. So if we have a confidence that what we're reading is God's word, then we don't argue with it and fuss with it. We just say, well, Lord, help me to understand it and, and help me to know what to do with it in my personal life day by day. And so that's the approach that we have. Uh, and now let me move ahead now into the next portion here. But that temple, the glory of it, will be exceeding, unlike anything ever before. But I want to touch on the next few verses here. Starting in verse 10 here, it says, On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Notice this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priest concerning the law, saying, now we get it on to legal ground. A couple of legal questions are going to be asked here. And if the legal questions are asked, then what do you need in order to adjudicate those? You need to know what the law is. <laughs> right? These legal questions, you need to know what the law is. <laughs> That's a lawyer. Huh? <laughs> right. So he says here, a couple of these, these uh, questions. And I'm going to give it to you the way I paraphrase it, and then I'm going to read it where it says it here in the text. But I said, does a thing become holy by merely touching the thing that is holy? Does a thing become holy by merely touching the thing that is holy? Or another question, does a thing become unclean by merely touching the thing that is unclean. Now, let's read what it says here. The question, first one. If one carries holy meat. Now, holy is, it is set aside for a specific purpose. That's what made it holy. It had to be, it had to be its qualifications, and then it's set aside specifically for that purpose, so it's holy. If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? That's a legal question. And the answer is, they gave the answer. The priest answered and said no. That meant that they understood the rule of law and how to apply it to the question that had been asked. And then Haggai in verse 13 said, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches one of these, will it be unclean? Same thing. They knew the rule of law and how to apply it. And so the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. Touching. That's what the Lord said. That's what it had Haggai said to the people. Now, now, this is kind of interesting because he draws them in first to say, consider what has already been told to you. And then he makes an application to them. Of course, when you hear that kind of a discourse, you know something's coming. So it says in verse 14, then Haggai answered and said, so 
is this people. And so is this nation before me, says the Lord. So is every work of their hands. And what they have, what they offer there is unclean. So he said, I think I can paraphrase it this way. That you can go through those motions and you can appear to be doing what the Lord commanded and making an offering that's unclean. That's not acceptable to the Lord. He's not accepting. But from the outward appearance, everything appears to be in order. That gives us cause for pause because we don't want to be in that place of self-deception. Well, we're going through emotions thinking that the Lord is pleased and he's not. They were doing that, and they got called out on it. So the law that they were applying, he came, one part of it is in Leviticus. In chapter 6, verses 24 to 27, it says this. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering in the place where the burnt offering is killed. The sin offering shall be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it in a holy place. It shall be eaten in the court of the tabernacle of meeting. Everyone who touches his flesh must be holy. And when his blood is sprinkled on any garment, you shall wash that on which it was sprinkled in a holy place. The holy things had to be handled in a proper way, not just in a slipshod way. I'm going to read another verse here. The touching of a dead body brought uncleanness. What we refer to as ritual uncleanness. In Numbers chapter 19, verses 11, 13. He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with the water on the third day. And on the seventh day, then he will be clean. So the touching caused an uncleanness, but it didn't have to be a permanent uncleanness. There's a provision to become clean again. And that's what he's saying here. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not purify himself, notice what it says, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. The attitude is, I can do it my way in the Lord's house the way I want to do it. He doesn't get to tell me what to do or how. I do it the way I want to. That's the kind of an attitude. And the Lord says that's not going to fly. They're defying the tabernacle of the Lord. That person shall be cut off from Israel. He shall be unclean because the water of purification was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanness is still on him. And whose fault is that? I think we know whose fault it is. He had contracted uncleanness 
And sometimes people contracted uncleanness in the Testament days that these writers would, in the days when these writers were done. Sometimes they, they became unclean inadvertently. But if they were going to be clean again, they had to do what the Lord said. See? And to go into the Lord's temple and tabernacle and carry on as if they were clean, the Lord said no. You might say yes, but I'm saying no. Yes, ma'am. Okay. So the essence of what she's saying is, if I get it correctly, is what happens if they start in the process and they miss one of the days? It said the third day and the seventh day. So what happens? But, and I haven't studied that in particular, but my, my thought would be that they could start the process again and then do it that way. That would be my thought on it. Right, start over and get it according to the order that's given there. That would be my that would be my thought off the cuff. But I haven't studied that particular question. Okay. But it's a good one. Right. Because especially since I use the word inadvertent, so somebody might have what we might call an inadvertent miss. <laughs> you know, something happened so they couldn't do the thing that you should have done. We're gonna pray. And ask the Lord to help us. Dear Lord God, we thank you for the privilege that you have given to us to sit quietly and to consider what thus says the Lord. Now, stir us, Lord, so that these words of yours, not the words that I have spoken, but apart from the word of the Lord, that they will work in us what you desire by your spirit. In the name of Christ, the Savior, we ask. Amen.